to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening and making commitment to your learning. We hope you're doing well. For your hosts, I'm Yvonne Brandenburg, joined by Jordan Porter. And, uh, I, and you know, I think we're both kind of excited because we're joined by some really cool people this week. I know. So, yeah. for a couple of weeks. For a couple of weeks. That's true. A couple of weeks. So, um, we are starting an oncology series and <laughs> Jordan and I know oncology from an internal medicine standpoint, which is to say we support oncology, <laughs> but, uh, uh, we're joined by, and I'm going to, you know, butcher all this. Um, so we have Danielle DeCormier. Did I say it right? I said it right. Um, LVT, VTS and Onco, and then Jenny Fisher, RVT, VTS, Onco, and if you recognize these names, it's because they, they, you know, speak at conferences and they're amazing. So, hey, ladies. Hello. Hey. <laughs> um, so I, I want, if for some pe- reason people have not heard of you guys before, <laughs> we'll, we'll start with Danielle. So Danielle, who, who are you? What do you do? What do you do? Well, I go by Danny most of the time, but you can absolutely call me Danielle. Uh, I am, oh gosh, I do a lot of training stuff, um, currently now, but I still love my oncology, always doing it all the time. I live in Virginia beach. I moved away from really cold Michigan and now I live in a sunshiny place that has the ocean. So that's my favorite. <laughs> um, I feel like that is like me in a, I always say in a nutshell, except it's a coconut shell because I have a very big shell. <laughs> nice. uh, I love talking about oncology as I'm sure you're about to find out. So I will pass nice. that over to Miss Jenny. <laughs> well, hi guys. Thank you so much for having us. I think this is a fantastic, obviously topic to talk about, but what a fun group of ladies to have together. This might get a little wild over the next couple of episodes. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm happy to be here, but I'm Jenny. Um, like you guys said, VTS oncology. Um, I also work a lot with the Academy as Danny does, which is an honor, um, which I think all of us um, get to the honor to do. I currently am on the other side or the dark side of the industry. I left clinical practice about six years ago, full-time clinical practice. Uh, and I'm currently the education director for a product device company. So I enjoy that quite a bit. It's a different change of pace, but I like to get back in the oncology setting and in the clinic floor as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think all of us are kind of in weird places. Like Danny, are you in a clinic? Or are um, you training? I'm sometimes in clinics. I help support right? a lot of different hospitals. And so um, yeah. it's a lot of just training to be a technician in general, but then everyone remembers what I love. And so then it's always, <laughs> Oh, come talk to our oncology department about very specific things. And are we doing things that come over here? And I'm like, but, Oh, absolutely. And now I'm going to get stuck here because I love it. And now I can't leave. And I have to know all the cool <laughs> things that are happening. What cool cases are you seeing? They're like, what do you mean? Cool case. I'm like, what? Let's get excited. 
we have cool cases and I want to know what they are. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I think all four of us, um, you know, we have our VTSs and I think we've, I, I'm going to say graduate. I don't know if graduate is the right term, but we've all kind of gone out of the traditional clinical sense and, and they're doing other things, which is kind of crazy actually, now that I think about it. So yeah, we all found a passion for sharing the knowledge that we acquired already versus yeah. just using it all the time and want to share it with others. Yeah, <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think we have any housekeeping things. Uh, Jordan, was there any housekeeping stuff that we needed to talk about this week? Uh, not this week. Oh, except for, I did want to say, if you're going to be at the Midwest oh, veterinary right. conference, come say hi. I'm like, yeah, that, when is, when is that That's... next weekend? So February, I'll be there the 18th and 19th of 2022. So yes. <laughs> if you listen to it, when it goes live, it'll be this coming weekend. If you don't listen to it that week, well, you missed Jordan. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so and we're gonna we're gonna kind of dive into this series and um because you know Jordan and I are not oncology techs, we kind of had to defer to these wonderful ladies about <laughs> topics and how to do it. So we're gonna start talking about some diseases people are probably familiar with. And then it sounds like the end of our series is gonna be like the, the basics of, of chemotherapy and safety and all that fun stuff, because that is very much is like a huge subject in and of itself. Um, does that sound correct? Did I interpret you guys correctly? This is, this is the important part. Nailed it. All right. All right, cool. So we are starting this week with lymphoma. Um, and, uh, you know, Jordan and I originally said lymphoma and, um, they were like, Ooh, this needs to be two. So this week is the introduction and then focus on canine. And then the next episode will be lymphoma and then cats. Cause it is, it is different. And like, okay. I should have known that, but, <laughs> but you know, I didn't. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this over to you guys. And then Jordan and I will probably just ask really random questions or throw in our two cents occasionally. But um, yeah, have at it, ladies. Awesome. <laughs> so obviously we're talking about lymphoma and I may have just been joking about this because you'll also see it called lymphosarcoma. It's the same wow. thing. And honestly, that's just some extra letters you don't need. So just go ahead and call it lymphoma because they're not two different diseases. It's the same one. So we're going to stick with the short one. It's easier to say everyone knows it, right? Okay. That's my little mini soapbox. On that's lymphoma. so funny. Cause I was like, lymphosarcoma. I was like, what is that? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's just lymphoma. <laughs> the same, same disease. There's nothing different about it except the letters. So shorter is better, right? Um, so when we talk about like what lymphoma actually is, so it's going to be that cancer of the lymphatic system, right? And so that's our germ fighting network. That is our immune system. It includes our lymph nodes, but anywhere that we have, um, anywhere that we've got excessive <laughs> lymph cells, how about that? So we're looking at our spleen, um, our thymus, looking at our bone marrow, but anywhere that the immune system goes, you can actually find lymphoma. So that's why I'll tell you, it's in a lot of places. 
And well, and I think it's is- funny because I think people just assume, like, just think of like the lymph nodes, like, you know, under the jaw and they're like, that's it. And you're like, actually there's a lot of lymph nodes everywhere. And if you've ever felt the lymphoma dog, you go, Oh, that's where they are. Cause it's I mean, hard to miss the best patient to ever learn where your lymph nodes are at. Well, their lymph nodes, not ours. Cause ours are not the same, but right. <laughs> where theirs are is when they're all nice and big and enlarged. Although it's usually not a great sign for the patient that you're learning on. Yes. Um, and it is a systemic disease. So when we start talking about um, it spreading places, a lot of times people talk about cancer spreading. Lymphoma is just different because mm-hmm. it can't just be everywhere without it actually spreading everywhere. So it's an important mm-hmm. thing to keep in mind with lymphoma because it's the weird kid, but it's the really common weird kid. <laughs> and well, there are- So when you say that, like, so because we're talking about lymph nodes and lymphatic systems, which are just everywhere, sure. but that would mean like it's contained within that organ versus going to organs outside of that system. Is that kind of- If you think about just almost any other kind of cancer where there is like a tumor, right? So that Mm -hmm. tumor has all of your little cancer cells in it. And sometimes they will just break away and be free and go spread Mm. to where they like to go spread to. And that's the cancer spreading lymphoma is just like, you know what, I'm going to be in this lymph node. And I'm just going to also be hanging out over here in the spleen. There might not be anything in between there, but these Mm. are the stuff that just, they just want to pop up on over here. Got and maybe, uh, maybe we'll make friends along the way and make a little road, but for now we're just hanging out over here. Got so it, it okay. can literally just pop up in any of those systems. And then the reason we're doing two and that we specified that, yes, this is canine. We are going to, to focus specifically on canine multicentric lymphoma, because what you might not know being in just internal medicine is that there's a bunch of different kinds. There's grades, there's high and low grade. There are multiple stages of all these and substages. There's also epitheliotrophic, which is like the skin kind. Then we've got it indolent, which is like one lymph node just hanging out over here. We have just a splenic, which is not the same as our multicentric large cell that's going to have large and small cell. There's intermediate cell too. There's leukemic types. So we're going to go ahead and focus on the most common one because one, we see more dogs than we do cats. And the most common one that we do see is the multicentric, which is usually a high grade large cell lymphoma. Okay. All right. These and words that's the sound definition <laughs> that itty bitty word lymphoma. <laughs> nice. um, but I am going to, I'm going to let, um, I joke that biology is not my strong point. I actually hated biology in, in <laughs> college and in high school, which is really funny since this is what I love. So maybe I don't hate it, but I'm going to pass the rest of that little explanation over to Jenny because she's going to be able to explain it so much better than I am. <laughs> nice. So lymphoma is a round cell cancer. So when we talk about malignancies within the body, they arise from a certain tissue, right? And each tissue tends to produce a certain type of tumor. So there's three main classifications that we look at. So there's round cell, epithelial cell tumors, and mesenchymal cell tumors. 
Round cell tumors, cytologically under a microscope, their cells are very round, kind of as they are described. The two most common tumor types that we see in veterinary medicine are both round cell tumors. Lymphoma happens to be a round cell tumor. So when we are doing things like diagnostics, like Danny's going to talk about, one of the reasons we do a lot of cytology is because round cell tumors tend to exfoliate their cells or give off their cells very, very easily. So lymphoma can actually be definitively diagnosed just on an FNA. So that's one of the really neat um, things for us, what Danny's going to talk about, how us technicians can be more involved, especially in, the, in that diagnostics process. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a malignant tumor or hematopoietic tumor. So a tumor of cells that um, arise in the blood or lymphatic system. And the way that the genetics of how cancer is formed is actually one of my favorite things to talk about because it's typically what people want to know, right? How did it get the cancer? How did it get a tumor? And unfortunately, a lot of that data just doesn't exist in the veterinary space. So we really have to pull from a lot of the human literature. And there's some really interesting information that talks about the causes of cancer in human medicine. And they attribute about 90% of cancers to environmental agents. And that's whether it's mm. external exposure or things that we put into our body. So cigarette smoking, things that we eat, right? Sugar that we know is awful and the devil that is so delicious. Um, so that is pretty interesting. And, you know, in about 10% are due to genetics or hereditary disorders, but we know that that environmental damage can actually come in and, and damage the DNA of some of the proteins within the cell. And when that happens, those proteins can actually dysregulate or make what we call tumor suppressor genes. So P53, P16, these are common genes that live in the body that basically their job is to hang out. And if they see one of those cells that have this damaged DNA, their job is to go and kind of put out the fire per se. Mm. So when this DNA is damaged, it causes the dysregulation of those suppressor genes, meaning they're not there to do their job, which means an upregulation in that reproduction of that cell growth. So that's kind of how mm. we have the formations. And we certainly see lymphoma being linked um, to tumor suppressor genes as well. So things like dysregulation or, uh, or downregulation of P53 and P16, which we could do a whole talk um, on genetics and, and, and the effects. On, so I, I get really excited, but <laughs> so, um, that's, you know, that's when we're looking at kind of the pathophys there. And we really refer to a lot of the clinical signs that kind of correlate um, to the way that the patient is presenting clinically to our pathophysiologic um, state. So as we talked about, canine and feline are very, very different. So the presentation is different. The um, Oftentimes the treatment is very different uh, as well as prognosis can be very different as well. So we're gonna focus on canine lymphoma and our canine lymphoma, there is potentially some link to maybe parasiticide exposure. We do know that there is some link with human lymphomas, especially Hodgkin's lymphoma to pesticide exposure. The incidence of dogs, which is pretty interesting to me, um, especially when we talk about our kitty cats, is typically what we see around 24 to out of that 100,000 cases. So a significant incidence, right? But not mm. as much as our cats. When our kitty cats, we see about 200 out of every 100,000, which is actually more than people and more than dogs. So wow. very, very high incidence of lymphoma in our kitties that I have a feeling is going undiagnosed, which is why we're going to talk to you about feline lymphoma 
So we're going to help <laughs> kind of change that, that whole revolution there. Um, we do know that it doesn't care male or female, and it typically has an increasing risk with age. So these canine mm-hmm. lymphoma patients 80% of these patients are going to present with what we call generalized lymphadenopathy. So they have those really large lymph nodes, right? Um, and a lot of times it's that golden retriever comes in, they feel really good, but they're, right? They have these huge lymph nodes um, and, and are having some, some issues breathing kind of with those. So the three main sets of peripheral lymph nodes that we kind of look at are the mandibular lymph nodes the prescapular lymph nodes, and then the popliteal lymph nodes. No, that doesn't mean that that's all the lymph nodes that we see that are affected, but those are the three peripheral sets that when they are normal, you should still be able to palpate those, right? So that's kind of in a good position to be, to get to know where they are, to know what they feel like normally, so you can tell when there's a difference there, right? So when we talk about cancers, we talk about staging and grading, and people kind of throw those words around. And so it's important to remember that we stage the the patient and we grade the disease, right? So grading Mm. is something we see on, on histopathology or sometimes even on cytology, but we stage the patient, right? So with lymphoma, with canine lymphoma, we see what's called stage and substage, and both of those can be prognostic. So our stages are stage one through five, And a stage one is when we have one node or one location affected, okay? And that can be extra nodal forms of lymphoma. So that can be lymphoma in a single site that we can refer to as a stage one as well. Stage two is where we have two lymph nodes affected, but they're gonna be on the same side of the diaphragm. Stage three is when we're gonna have lymph nodes affected on both sides of the diaphragm. Stage four is when we're gonna have organ involvement. And then stage five is gonna be marrow infiltration or CNS involvement as well. So that's how we stage that disease. Now we get that staging we know what that stage is by doing staging diagnostics, which is what Danny's going to talk to you about um, in just a little bit. But we also have something called substage, and substage is pretty interesting um, because substage is a huge prognostic factor with canine lymphoma, and we either have substage A or substage B, and A means those patients felt good at presentation, right? They may have had those really big lymph nodes, Mm. but they were still eating. They might've been a little bit slower, but they felt overall good when they presented. Substage B are patients that are clinically sick from the presence of their disease. So Mm. these are the, the lymphoma dogs that come in that are not feeling well, they're not eating, they're vomiting, they're having diarrhea, they're really lethargic, right? That's gonna be our substage or their clinical presentation. Now we Mm. know that substage B has a negative prognostic factor and tend to do worse than our patients that are substage A. Um, Some of the other sub um, prognostic factors that we see just specifically with canine lymphoma. So that stage and substage, but also what we call immunophenotype. And Danny's going to talk about that too, but that's kind of what we do. um, a, a B cell or a T cell. I was going to say A and B. I'm still in substages. Um, so B cell and T cell. Uh, and B cell tends to, we kind of think of it as the good lymphoma uh, and T kind of as the terrible um, or the worse off lymphoma. Now, immunophenotype is prognostic in dogs. So we know that B cell tends to do better. T cell tends to do worse. However, immunophenotype 
is not prognostic in our kitty cats. So very, very different, when we, right? Right. It's mm-hmm. so different um, when we're approaching that disease, specifically looking at the differences. Presentation is a huge one, um, especially with that, with that canine lymphoma. Did I miss anything, Danny? Gosh, no, no, you <laughs> nailed all of those things. And you even did my little thing where I remember that B is better T is terrible. Now B is also bad. So please also remember that because it's lymphoma, but it is better. (laughs) B is terrible. It's the easier way to remember if you see those to know like, oh, was that one? And like she said, except better and terrible. Kitties like to have T cell no matter what they're doing with it. So it doesn't matter (laughs) at all for them. They're like, I'm just a cat. Ignore that, please. (laughs) And is, Um, is, is large cell and small cell. That's, that's, different than what you guys just talked about, right? That's uh, another part. So (laughs) canine multicentric tends to be a large cell lymphoma, not a small cell lymphoma. Now kitty cats, we break that down further um, and we'll go into that in the kitty cat, but yes, it can be large cell versus small cell. We're referring mainly to the large cell. Okay, cool. All right. So when we talk about our differential diagnoses and trying to figure out, is this actually lymphoma? Um, as Jenny said, that fine needle aspirate is going to be a definitive diagnostic tool that you can use. But when you're first looking at that, um, I'm going to use a pit bull, for example, because I've got one. So you've got a pit bull oh who has right. those mandibular lymph nodes that are enlarged and you want to rule out literally any other cause for those, um, which you can do by doing the FNA, but everything that you know that can cause an immune reaction can cause lymph node enlargement, lymph node enlargement. There we go. And so we're looking at our allergies, our tick-borne diseases, especially our mandibular ones, because those are the ones that are just um, behind our jaw. Anything that goes wrong with their teeth infections Mm -hmm. can also make those get enlarged. So we want to go looking to make sure that we're not missing something else. And then the other diagnoses that we can run into are going to be our leukemias because they can present similarly. Um, and so we want to do, that's when the additional tests will come in for lymphoma that I'm going to talk about. Some of our special tests can help to differentiate those two. So when we look at how do we actually differentiate these, the best part about oncology is most of the diagnostics and tests that we can do can actually be performed in most places by the technician. We cannot diagnose that cancer, but gosh, we can (laughs) get all of those results right on over to that clinician and they can go ahead and make that diagnosis. (laughs) And there's a lot of tests, but I mean, in most places, we we literally can do all of these. So the first one, the biggest one, definitively diagnosing based on that cytology of doing your aspirate of your lymph node. Technicians, we want to make sure that we measure any palpable lymph node that we can measure. And when we say measure, we don't just want to know one measurement. You have to measure it two to three ways. Um, So you want to, the third way can be really hard because that's when you're trying to go like deep into the animal and they are not always appreciative of that. (laughs) So at least getting your um, dual measurement is going to be best. So, you know, get yourself a good pair of calipers, start practicing. My animals hate when I come at them with things because I practice (laughs) just about every skill I've got on them. So they're totally used to it. 
Uh, I joke that I've not always been the greatest at measuring lymph nodes, but the key here is honestly consistency in who's measuring it because you want to measure for change. Um, mm. So that's how you know if things are progressing or getting better if your treatment is working is if the same person is measuring it because honestly, Jenny and I could both measure and get completely different measurements just because of a slight angle of how we were holding onto that lymph node when we measured it. Oh. And so we want to make sure that it's being done the same way each time. And do you usually use like a body map or do you just like yeah. list it out? Like how, what do you like, there's, what there's is the Onco gold standard, I guess is my question. Like, there's body maps. And then a lot of people for lymphoma, because pulling out a body map each time is not always easy. We do like a chart. And so mm. you have, and some people call mandibular lymph nodes, submandibular lymph nodes, again, same lymph nodes. Um, and so it'll be like a left and right. So you'll have columns for left and right. Mm. And then you'll have rows for each lymph node area that you were measuring. So if they were the mandibular, the popliteal, the prescapular, um, a lot of times as lymphoma uh, progresses, you can also see the axillary ones as well can be measurable. Oh, yeah. Those are pebble on the outside of the body if they're big enough. So that's in creating that chart. And that way you can replicate that chart very easily over and over again um, and be able to compare the numbers each time. Nice. So we definitely want to do that. Um, when it comes to actually testing for the cancer itself or staging it to see if lymphoma is anywhere else, we would also want to do imaging. Um, Jenny did say that your chances of getting lymphoma go up with age, right? This cancer is supposed to be in generally a disease of older people and animals. Uh, we don't like seeing it in our younger kids. That's when genetics definitely comes more into play. So our imaging, we want to see if there are any enlarged sternal lymph nodes, because there are actually lymph nodes in that area that you cannot feel on the outside, but you can see them on x-rays. Mm -hmm. And then also if there is a mediastinal mass, because there can be mediastinal masses with lymphoma as well that tends to be of the T cell factor, although that is not always guaranteed, but we do see that more often with that. So seeing a mediastinal mass is not always a great thing for them, Right. but it can absolutely be lymphoma. The only way we'd absolutely know that is if we sampled it, which if we're going for an outside lymph node, that'll usually give us our answer anyway, because it's easier to get to. But a lot of people will take two view x-rays I know that that is very common. And I've even known some oncologists to say that with lymphoma, you don't need that third view because honestly, if you're going to see a mass or an enlarged lymph node, you will generally be able to see it on two views. However, you know, that heart's in the middle and it can obscure something. Uh, I personally had my own pet that had, of course, as a cat, so it's not really relevant, except that she did end up having intestinal lymphoma, but we took chest x-rays because we take chest x-rays and we found a random tumor in her lungs that actually was not lymphoma. So you can see <laughs> other things. And so we want to make sure to get that third view so that we're getting the full picture of our patient's lungs to make sure that we shouldn't be also paying attention to something else, as well as looking for our enlarged lymph nodes. The other imaging that we do um, is usually an abdominal ultrasound because we've got all of those lymph nodes hanging out in there. And then we've mentioned those other organs like our spleen to see if it's in there. Lymphoma can go into other organs as well. Um, renal lymphoma 
is something or multicentric can actually be present in the kidneys as well. So we want to get a picture of that and that could change our stage. And so seeing lymph nodes enlarged in there or then being in the spleen doesn't actually change the prognosis. So not everyone recommends them or does them. They're not required for treatment, but it's always better to know where it is when you're starting than if it showed up there later. That's what we usually say. It's better yeah. to know up front. That's our gold standard. Absolutely not required because again, it's not going to, it's not going to change anything about the animal's prognosis or its treatment. So it's hmm. not necessary to do. However, that is something also technicians can be trained how to do. We know that we take the x-rays and we know that we can measure our lymph nodes. We can also take ultrasound pictures. And I know some that do as well. Then they get evaluated by the proper doctor to diagnose all of the things. Uh, one of the other procedures that not every oncologist does is going to be a bone marrow aspirate. And that is, we're looking to see if it's infiltrated the bone marrow because that one does change prognosis. So that is what moves us into stage five, or it can be a leukemic form of the disease. And that tends to take our prognosis and divide it in half. So usually mm. stages one through four, um, if we do treatment, they've got about a year that we can usually get them into remission. If they respond well, it cuts that to about six months if it's stage five. So knowing if it's in the bone marrow, usually you're gonna see some changes on blood work before we would have to go to a bone marrow aspirate. But if you're doing all of the things to find out if it is anywhere and just want to know the full stage of that cancer, bone marrow aspirate is going to be a great way to find that out. There are some states that technicians can also perform that procedure. So keeping that in mind, we can also go ahead and do that. Um, some doctors are, are really cool in teaching that mine was going to before I decided to move to the beach. So sorry, the beach called my name. Otherwise I could tell you that I did it. But beach, right? Um, and then we, I do talk, want to talk about just lab work in general. We're not going to see a whole lot of things that'll definitively diagnose lymphoma on things like a CBC or a biochemistry or even a urinalysis. If we see anything on there, it's usually indicative that we have a paraneoplastic syndrome going on, which doesn't have anything to actually do with the grade or stage of that cancer. It's just something that the cancer affects in the body and it makes it go all wonky, just totally technical speak, right? So the things that we can see with that are going to be anemia. So the cancer doesn't necessarily make them anemic, but if they are, that's something that we do want to know because we want to make sure that it's improving if they're going through treatment. It can make them thrombocytopenic. Again, it's rare, but it can happen because we can go into our bone marrow and our spleen, you know, cause issues with our red blood cells, cause issues with our platelets. And then it can also cause um, hypercalcemia. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the most common reasons that we get hypercalcemia of malignancy. Um, we'll talk about one of our other cancers that kind of ties lymphoma with how often <laughs> it happens. Um, and that is going to be our anal sac endocarcinoma. But when we see that, if we see enlarged lymph nodes and we see an elevated calcium, there's a good chance we're looking at lymphoma. And we want to make sure that our symptoms also are not from that as well. So if they are drinking more PUPD, there's a good chance that we want to make sure what that calcium looks like and to make sure that we don't have to treat any of those things ahead of time along with the cancer, although they usually won't resolve without treating the actual cancer itself. 
Hmm. But we can look into those. And then we have really special tests that we like to do for lymphoma. Uh, we do things like flow cytometry, which is where it looks at, it tags live cells and it puts it through a machine and they'll light up and glow. And they measure how many those are. And the flow cytometry is the immunophenotyping. So that is where we are going to tell if it's the T cell or the B cell, as well as definitively diagnose that it is lymphoma by telling us that. We do have to send it to, out to labs. Um, T cells express very specific antibodies. It's gonna be our CD3 and CD4 and eight. And then B cells do CD21 and 20 and 79A. But those are the big main ones. It's this beautiful little plot. I read reports. The lab tells me what it is. I've never run that test. I've never seen it run in person. I've watched a video on it for sure. Um, it's, but it's, it's really cool information to know. Um, the biggest thing to remember is it has to be on live cells. So this test, it is performed, it can be performed on blood. It can be performed on a lymph node aspirate. So if you're aspirating a lymph node, uh, you want to put it in saline into a red top tube. But the other thing that you want to include is serum. You want to take serum preferably from, it can be their own, but you want it from the same species. Um, it doesn't have to be their own because those are live cells and you have to ship them and you want them to survive. So you have to give them food and they'll feed on the beautiful stuff in the serum until they get there and do their test. Now, if you did everything right and they died, that's terrible. Absolutely. But we still have another test that they can run. And it is a PAR test, which is the PCR for antigen receptor rearrangement. And this, they don't have to be live. This might not tell you if it's B cell or T cell. A lot of times it can, but it may not. It will, however, tell you if it's lymphoma or not. So if you were just mm -hmm. looking for your diagnosis, you can use it for that. So it will tell you if that cell line is all made, if it's monoclonal, it's all coming from the same one, or if it's coming from different ones, if it's different ones, it's usually an immune reaction of some kind. It's the same one. Our cancer cells like to replicate themselves. And so that's when we're starting to look at lymphoma instead. And for those guys, um, you can also do that on lots of things. So it doesn't have to be a lymph node aspirate. If you have a bunch of, if you have a lymphocytosis and you're not entirely certain what's going on, you can send that purple top out the blood and have it tested to definitively diagnose lymphoma as well. Mm. So just keeping in mind. And then you can also do CSF, bone marrow. You can send a lot of different abdominal fluid. You can send all those fluids out to have this test done. Again, yes. never watched it done. I bet it would be really cool. I need to really make a friend in a lab where I can see some <laughs> of these things for sure. Cause it would be so cool. Um, and then the other one is not a test that's specific to lymphoma, but it's very, very important in some of our patients. And that's testing for the MDR1 gene, the mutation. The reason that's important, everyone thinks ivermectin. We all know collies and ivermectin. Oh my gosh, don't do it because it's a bad thing. Australian shepherds are also on that list. But if you look at some of the other drugs on there, doxorubicin, vincristine, and vinblastine are all on that list. Two of those are two of the most common chemotherapies that we use specifically in lymphoma. Vincristine is given every other treatment in our main protocol. So it's the one that we start treatment with. So we usually want to know that ahead of time and we will absolutely test our collies and our Australian shepherds. A lot of people who have collies actually come in with that knowledge already or their vet has it, which is fantastic. If you have one of those breeds, 
please do that because then if for any reason, if they need to have any of those drugs, not just the chemo, um, you'll already know and you won't have to worry about it ever. So, but I always mention that, especially with chemo, that that's a big deal and we want to make sure that we know. Doesn't mean we can't give that drug. We might have to make some serious changes though to make them not sick. And those, mm. are, those are our big, I mean, not that that's not enough testing, but because lymphoma <laughs> says that it wants to go anywhere, all right, we're going to test everywhere. I didn't even touch, honestly, if it goes into the CNS and what that testing looks like. Normally that's presentation. Um, we don't always, obviously we're not going to really test the brain for it, but we can usually tell based on signs and symptoms, how they're behaving, what they're doing, the presence of lymphoma, if it is anywhere else and figure out what that looks like for them. So then we talk about our treatment, right? So we did all of our tests. We did all of our gold standard. We know all of the things. What do we do? Do we hospitalize? Because cancer, it's scary, right? We, they, they're very sick. They have to be in the hospital. Well, what Jenny said, we have substages. We have A and B. A is they don't know that they're sick at all. They just happen to be walking around with baseballs in their neck or the backs of their legs, happy as a clam. Um, or minimally, like maybe a little lethargic. That's our substage A. That is a majority of how our patients show up, our canine patients, when they have this, they have no idea that they're sick because owners usually notice that they've got these giant lymph nodes before any other symptoms show up. So we don't have to hospitalize a lot of them. Most of our treatments start as outpatient. I will say substage B, sometimes we get a hold of those because they've gone to see IM for some reason, or they've come in through an emergency and they're already hospitalized, they're really sick and we discover they have lymphoma that the owners didn't notice these big lymph nodes, they noticed all of the other symptoms first or just smacked them like a truck and took them down really fast. Mm -hmm. For all of those reasons, we can have patients that are in the hospital. Chances of the oncology service hospitalizing a brand new lymphoma are pretty rare. So it's almost always going to be outpatient. When we do have our kids that don't feel well, the only way to make those symptoms go away is gonna be to treat them with chemo. So it sounds a little weird to a lot of people that you're going to take a sick patient and give them chemo because in an owner's mind, that's going to make them more sick, which is actually not the case. We're not going to make them more sick. Most of the time it is never our, never our goal, but we can give them L-asparaginase. So it's not used by a lot of oncologists right off the bat, unless they're not feeling well. It's amazing. I love it. It is a sub Q or IM injection and it works within 24 to 48 hours and it can help put them into remission very, very quickly. It does nothing for keeping them in remission. So that has to be followed up with some other kind of treatment. But if you have a patient that's not eating, that's destroying their own cells, that is just generally very sick. If you give them Elspar, we can make it better. And they don't tend to stay in the hospital very long after receiving that with steroids. We love steroids. So we will also <laughs> throw steroids at them with our Elspar to make sure that we can get them feeling better. Now, the downside to this is there is something that can happen if they, if that works, they're really sick and we start treatment and it works. We're like, yeah, it worked. If it works too fast, they can get something called acute tumor lysis syndrome which is where the cancer just all starts to die. But then what happens to it? The body has to get rid of 
all of that stuff that just happened from that cell, all those intracellular products. So it tends to result in hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and hyperuricemia. And so then this starts to go into the kidneys and causes acute kidney injury, which then leads to fatal azotemia and arrhythmias because of that electrolyte imbalance. Now, all that sounds like it could take a pretty long time. No, this happens very, very fast. And if you don't catch it in the initial stages, then there's not a really good chance that you're gonna be able to stop it to save that patient or reverse the damage. This is very rare. There aren't that many documented cases of it happening. Um, but I will say that if we have a patient who is really sick, who could otherwise go home, if we're going to give LSPAR, like we have huge disease, we did all the tests and it's everywhere. And they're starting to feel possibly getting into substage B, but not to the point where they need to be hospitalized on IV fluids. We might hospitalize them anyway, so that they have someone constantly watching for those very specific symptoms. We might put them on an ECG overnight to make sure that we're not missing an arrhythmia that's happening because if we can catch it immediately, we can do something about it. So we have done that in the past um, because again, that successful treatment is all about catching it quickly and then managing that electrolyte imbalance quickly. And then yeah. that's our serious one though. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of times that, that acute tumor lysis is directly related to tumor burden. Yeah, the, the more tumor burden or disease that's present, the more at risk they are for acute tumor lysis. So less mm. disease burden, less likely that it's going to happen. Because I'm guessing that this, this is all about the cells breaking down and releasing things and it being overwhelming. So that makes yeah, sense absolutely. that you've got too much or not too well, yes, too much tumor, but like the larger the tumor, the more, more intracellular contents are going to be rushed into the bloodstream. Absolutely. And that Homeostasis. is what, <laughs> aside from that, our actual treatment protocols do involve chemotherapy. And like we kind of said in the beginning, we are going to go through chemotherapy, the administration stuff a little bit later, but we are going to talk about the protocols and what those look like. So for lymphoma, there is a standard protocol that everyone, it's the gold standard, it's what we go to. And it was initially developed by the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So everyone knows it by that full title. And it's called CHOP, C-H-O-P, because we used to have brand name drugs and not generic drugs. <laughs> so, um, I don't even know I, the H. I always mess up the H because it's not, it doesn't start with an H anymore. However, the drugs that are in that are going to be our vincristine, um, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and then L-asparginase if needed in the beginning. And then prednisone is going to be our P. So not quite a chemotherapy, but it is definitely part of our protocol. And that is going to be, it's once a week, pretty much for two months. And then it is every other week for eight more treatments. It's a 16 week, I'm sorry, 16 treatment protocol that goes over either 19 weeks or 25 weeks, depending on your clinician's preference um, and how that patient is doing. Every single one of these are gonna be preceded. We wanna do a CBC before we do any of them. We want to check our complete blood count because we are looking for our white blood cells, specifically our neutrophil count. Just like in people, we can absolutely make them neutropenic. Um, and so we do wanna check that for each one. The other type of treatments that we have is we refer to them as the single agent treatments. 
And that means that we are just using one chemotherapy because the CHOP protocol, we are rotating our drugs. I could run through how they all are, but it is vincristine every other treatment. And then it alternates cyclophosphamide and doxorubicin in between those. So it goes vincristine, cyclophosphamide, vincristine, doxorubicin, and it repeats that cycle four times. Hmm. If that wasn't confusing enough, I can probably throw some more numbers at you if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the one that tends to put them into remission for about a year. Um, I could get some more specific down to the day for you, but it's all statistics. So just the likelihood that they're mm. going to stay into remission is going to be about a year. Um, and then we would have to look at doing something else. And that's for our B cell kids. For T cell, some of our oncologists go for what we call MOP. Again, this one actually does still stand for most of the letters. O was Oncovin. So Vincristine used to be O just to make it really confusing. So Mustergen or Meclorathamine, Vincristine, mm -hmm. and then we use Procarbazine and Prednisone is one that they found to be pretty effective on T-cell. Our Meclorathamine or Mustergen is a very, very dangerous chemotherapy that we have to take a lot of safety precautions with. And since the window of, I think it was like a 2% difference between it being more effective um, back on one of the last studies that were, was done with it, a lot of oncologists have just moved away from it and gone mm. with other, other drugs. And then, so when we talk about our single agents, those are going to be our doxorubicin. That is our big heavy hitter. Doxorubicin is used for so many cancers and it does its job quite well, quite well. So we can use that one alone. The remission time is not as long with that one, but we do give five to six treatments of doxorubicin. And that one is going to be once every three weeks. So this is again, mm -hmm. for those people who can't come in every week for chemotherapy, finances might be a little bit of an issue. So trying to find a way that we can still effectively treat their dog, but stay within what they need, then we can sometimes look at our single agent. We do have a couple other options. We can use Lomustine, which is an oral medication. So if they don't like the pokes and they might not appreciate us doing that to them, this could be another option. Again, the remission time is not as long, but there is still a proven one and documented. So it is still an effective treatment for them. And it's all about honestly tailoring it to our patients as well. We have our gold standard and then we have our patient that's standing in front of us that we have to make sure that the protocol matches them and their family as well. And then we have our palliative treatment where we're not gonna really be treating anything else. We just wanna give them some time, make them feel good. Prednisone, corticosteroids are amazing for this. Um, it can make them chemo resistant. So that's why we don't like to start that and then suddenly decide to do chemotherapy because chemotherapy might not be as effective if we do that, but hmm. it can put them in remission usually for about four to six weeks. So people can do a lot of fun things that they thought they weren't going to have time to do with their pet with saying, by when people do those bucket lists, it gives them some time to do that, which can be absolutely amazing for them. So I always, always, always advocate at least using palliative prednisone because then again, they don't have to keep coming in for rechecks if we're just doing the prednisone for them too. Hmm. And those are pretty much our treatments because <laughs> there, there weren't enough, right? Did you want, I could come. There are more, there are more <laughs> nowadays. I will say these were the gold standard ones. We have a lot more that have hit the market since um, we started doing all of these things. We do have our, oh gosh, 
I would love to say the generic, but I'm going to mess it up. We have Tenovia, which is mm. like Rebaclosidine. Ooh, I feel like I said that wrong for sure. Um, but we do still have that one um, out here now. That one is also given once every three weeks for five to six treatments. Um, so that would be one of our single agent options. It tends to work um, on our patients who have potentially not responded to other chemotherapies or have come out of remission. That is a lot of times when people go for Tenovia. And then we also have another new one on the market. And I'm going to apologize because I don't think I actually know the generic term for it, but we have Laverdia because it is so new. That is absolutely the brand name is still out there. So those are some of our other ones. Um, Tenovia is a big one because that is the second chemotherapy ever to be FDA approved specifically in the veterinary realm for our dogs. So that one was a big deal. It's the first one for lymphoma. Otherwise, these are all human drugs that we have kind of just pulled over and tested on dogs and studied on how the various cancers actually respond to them. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the things when we're, we'll talk about client communication too, I think when we talk about treatment, um, I think everybody goes, Oh my God, they're going to feel miserable. And I, and I think that's, it's, it's really interesting. Cause it's like that psychosomatic thing, right? Like with people, they go, I have cancer. I'm getting chemotherapy. I'm going to feel horrible. Dogs and cats just, they don't have that psychosomatic reaction, which is really interesting. Um, and so most of the times I feel like they do fairly well. Um, yes, you're going to need supportive stuff sometimes, but I don't know. They tend to tolerate it so much better than we do. <laughs> and I think if, I think if honestly, if the treatments were going to make them sick, like people were, you would have a whole lot less oncology technicians out there because oh, for sure. not be able to watch them doing that, but it has to do yeah. with the goals of our treatment. So the goal of our treatment for humans is prolonging their life. Like we want to cure and prolong their yeah. life. So they're getting these whopping doses. I can agree and say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to feel really crappy for three months because I'm going to live another 20 years right. and that's totally fine. I mean, my dog chunk, he doesn't even know what's going to happen next week. So he definitely <laughs> won't ever agree to feeling terrible because you know, his pillow wasn't cushy enough and he couldn't handle it. So let alone feeling sick from chemo. So our goal is a lot different. They're never going to live 50. Well, at least not anytime soon. They'll live 50 or someday we'll get there, but oh God, yeah, we want to, our goal is for them to feel good and live a great quality of life. They're never going to have that length, the quantity right. that we have. Well, and I think that's an important thing too, right? Because so many times when owners hear a prognosis of six to eight months, they go, oh my gosh, that's so short, but it's really not dogs don't, or animals don't age like we age, right? We talk right. about their aging difference. So if you give me a six to eight month prognosis, that sucks, right? Mm -hmm. You give my dog a six to eight month prognosis. He's an eight-year-old great Dane. That's in, a tenth in, of their lifespan. In correlation to their <laughs> oh, yeah. lifespan, 
it's not that sure. But I think when our owners hear it, because perception is reality, right? And our own reality is what is true. So they are referring to their lifespan that they think about. So when they hear that three to six months, they go, oh my goodness. And it's up to us, right? As the advocates to say, I get it. That sounds really scary, but I want you to think about how your pet ages. I want to think about how your, how old your pet is now, right? If this is a 17 year old cat and we get a year, holy crap, right? <laughs> right. Like, so I think that also falls on us as technicians to, to make sure that we communicate that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely a really important part too, is, is well, and I don't, do you, and I guess this is kind of, um, for, for you guys is like, do you think that you do a lot of that communication with the owners or is that more the veterinarian or is it both? Cause I think it probably depends on the practice too, you know, and tech mm. utilization, which is a whole other subject that we can go into, oh. but I mean, yeah. Uh, I like, do you guys you, initiate it or is it you're supporting? The, the doctors deliver the diagnosis and the prognosis. And honestly, most of them will be like, here you go. They're all yours to talk to where you mm. honestly go over the type of treatment, what they're going to expect. And all, a lot of that client care, if they have questions about a specific disease, that's when the clinician honestly will come in and be like, mm. okay. And that's only if that client demands it from them and won't listen to it from us. Otherwise mm. we do take over in our field, um, a lot of the client communication, because we're going to go over after yeah. we've talked about all of those treatment protocols and gone over all that, we're then going to be like, okay, so now you're going to take your pet home. What are you going to do? I have a huge, right. I always joke with my lymphoma patients because we used, if they're not feeling well, we do Elspar. I always tell them, I'm like, don't stare at your dog. I jokingly say this. And most of them are like, what did you say? And I'm like, don't stare at your dog. You're going to notice <laughs> little things that you didn't before that honestly, they've probably been doing for years. Right. So here are the things that you need to watch for. So let's talk about those. So honestly, with most chemotherapy, they're not going to see any effect the same day, the next day that generally doesn't happen. If it does, it could be doxorubicin because it likes to do things. Otherwise, um, most of their side effects are going to start about three days later, and they're usually going to be the GI side effects. So that's the, one of the first ones is going to be inappetence, and that's usually tied to nausea. So we either have scripts ready, called in, handed to the owner where they can start anti-nausea medications if they even notice that they're starting to turn their nose up at their food because we don't want them to get to vomiting. They're right. usually self-limiting. So even if they do start to show up around three days, when they come in a week later for either their next treatment and whatnot, they might be like, oh, we didn't eat for a couple of days, but we're fine now. And we're like, that was because of the chemo and you should have called. <laughs> Let's make sure yeah. that never happens again. And so we'll set up kind of a schedule for them to start their anti-nausea medications as well. So it can be, and that has to do with the life cycle of the GI cells and the fact that they're also rapidly dividing and chemotherapy affects those. So that's actually mm. how that happens and why it happens in that time frame. Um, so if they are, like I said, so if they go home and they're suddenly sick, we need to look at a different reason. It's not usually because of the chemotherapy that was given, like your dog might get car sick or any, literally any other reason except for the chemotherapy. Now, if they're <laughs> starting to have issues at the end of that cycle. So they're starting, like they made it past the three days, but that seven day where they're coming, they're like, yeah, this morning they stopped eating. 
that's also an odd situation because that would start to suggest that they might be neutropenic, which we are going to get into a little bit later because the life cycle of that white blood cell that ends up a little bit later. If they start vomiting at that point, that's also very weird because that's not a sign of that as well. So in oncology, the timing of the symptom that happens after chemotherapy says a lot about what could be causing it. We very rarely see delayed GI side effects versus um, actual neutropenic side effects instead and potentially like sepsis. So, but letting, I usually let them know that that's when they would start to see it. I like to do a call back around that third day to make sure if they're not calling me, cause it doesn't seem like a big deal to them to make sure that they're keeping their dog comfortable and feeling well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have to tell them to be careful, right? Because we have excretion times where some of our chemotherapies are found in saliva. So please don't let your dog lick all over your face like they would normally. It's usually in a very small amount. It doesn't cause a lot of harm to most normal humans because their doses are smaller. The excretion is not the full dose of chemotherapy. However, if you have pregnant, immune compromised children, any of those kind of people in the house, you want to make sure you are notifying the client that this could be something in case anything happens with any of them to be able to let a doctor know that that's something that's happening in the house. Or if you have another pet that is any of those things and they share water Mm -hmm. dishes, or any of those spaces, or they <clears throat> eat poop. <clears throat> I might, did I say that, that they eat poop? Yeah, mm, mm. I have one of those. So knowing that that's the way that it's excreted is gonna be a big deal and making sure that they wear gloves if they're cleaning up. So three days later, they do get nauseous. They do start vomiting. Make sure you've got gloves on when you're cleaning it up. I mean, I would hope they would do that anyway, but not everyone has gloves just hanging out around their house. <laughs> and so they're like, whatever, I'll just wash my hands people, you know, um, but we want to make sure that they understand, like it could be in there depending on the chemotherapy at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, um, they're like returned to their, their healthy activity and appetite. I mentioned this because some people are not prepared for them to feel good after chemotherapy. <laughs> so after they've started it and it starts actually treating the disease, especially lymphoma. Oh my gosh. All the people who come in with their 10 year old dogs were like, they're like a puppy again, because they're running around happens a lot. They never believe you when you tell them that that could happen until it happens. And so I do try to tell them that it could happen, especially marrying that with the side effects of prednisone, because we use whopping doses of prednisone when we start treating lymphoma. And so the chances of not seeing side effects are pretty low. They're usually going to see them. So warning them about the increased urination because of how much water they're drinking, not to worry about it. Um, but if they see it, we want to know, cause we can absolutely taper because it happens more severely with some than other that they might get hungry, really hungry. They might go into the garbage. They might jump on counters. They might snatch food out of your hand because they do that because <laughs> they right. just want to eat because of prednisone. Whereas if they've never done it before. And then I always remind, tell them about the weird PRED side effects that no one ever thinks about. So one of the ones that we hear as oncology technicians that no one else, I swear, ever hears about just because the dose is that I think it's temperature regulation. In all honesty, I think that is a thing with people, but they'll talk about that their dog no longer wants to lay with them on the couch or in the bed. They're laying on the kitchen floor or they're laying on the bathroom floor. And so are they mad at me because they did chemo or are they not feeling well? So they're sitting there. Whereas it's actually, that's a very cool floor versus a very warm bed. 
<laughs> and so that is a place that I tell people it has nothing to do with you, has everything to do with the drug that they're on that we tend to only use for four weeks. So it is a very temporary situation. Um, but most people, when I mention that, they say that they've seen it a time or two. So I do always, always mention that. And then the panting, because now suddenly, because it can make them pant, they're definitely sure they're dying in that moment because we've diagnosed <laughs> them with cancer. We've started chemotherapy. All of it is scary. Now they're panting. So we want to preempt any of that because that will lead to some panic in their mind. And so we always make sure to tell them those types of things and making sure that our long-term goals fit, right? So like the prednisone, that's some short-term stuff. We're going to go through those are little side effects that don't generally cause pain. But when we look at our treatment protocols, I mentioned this, right? We wanted to make sure that it, it's not only this is our gold standard, but does it match our patient? Um, like mm. I have, a, like there are dogs that if you poke them with a needle, you're dead. They're going to find a way to kill you through all of their dexdomator, their trazodone, any med that they can do, they will kill you with the look of their eye from the side and you will just drop. We don't want that. If that's how they're going to react to coming into the clinic every single week, this is not going to be the plan for them because that's not a great quality of life. So we want to make sure that we match that. Um, if they go swimming, I, we had this patient, I thought my oncologist was going to lose it. Every time this dog got chemo, always got neutropenic, but the lady took her doodle swimming in the ocean every single day. So we'd come in with like no white blood cells covered in sand and salt because we'd been swimming in the ocean, which we could pick up a life-threatening infection and die from that instead of our cancer. But when we would tell her that she needed to wait and not let the dog go swimming, she's like, absolutely not. That's the dog's life. So we had a huge discussion with her on, well, if that's the dog's life, then what are we doing by trying to make it like to cure the cancer, but we might be making it sick and not able to do what it loves. So she honestly stopped chemotherapy and would just come in for rechecks every now and again. Um, it was not lymphoma. So it wasn't as big of a thing. We, we lasted a little bit longer, but we made sure to match it to that dog's life. So we have to make sure that our goal and their goals match and that they fit our patient's temperament and life right. for sure. Because <laughs> otherwise we're going to see them once a week and they're going to be our best friends with lots of treats. Yeah. But there's a lot of things that the owners then have to watch for. Like I joke that cancer, we're going to make them feel good, right? But then there's a lot of things that we have to pay attention to, that clients have to pay attention to. And then as technicians that we need to specifically be watching for because we are giving them essentially a poison because that's what chemotherapy is to treat their cancer. Um, and Jenny's going to take away all the big scary things. Cause I talked about the fun ones. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nah, not at all. <clears throat> you know, it's always interesting to me and I love getting on groups like this where I can hear, especially internal medicine feedback as far as how they <laughs> how they respond to, to treatment. And Yvonne, you nailed it. Like the misconceptions that are out there surrounding chemotherapy and treatment mm -hmm. in our companion animals is astonishing. And it's yeah. that whole perception is reality, what they are going through. And so it's so interesting to me to be able to communicate that when I do lecture to people about, you know, we look at the human data that shows us that about statistically 80% of people that receive what we call maximum tolerated dose IV chemotherapy will have some type of side effect 
effect, right? We'll have a life altering side effect, vomiting, diarrhea, hair loss, things like that. And in the veterinary literature that we can tell, we actually see that less then 7% of our patients that receive IV chemotherapy have some type of life altering side effect. Wow. So it's really interesting. And one of the main reasons, like Danny said, we're not trying to push these kids out 20 years. So our dosing scheme is so much reduced as far as what they're dosing on the human side of things. So that's mm -hmm. why we're not seeing as much of the side effects because we're not dosing to that high to push to have these longer survivals. We are pushing for that quality and not quantity. And when she was talking about the chemotherapies and how you know, doxorubicin is one that we use a lot. And then we use some protocols that are alternating drugs. And the reason we do that is because those chemotherapies work on specific phases of the cell cycle, right? So you may have one chemotherapy that works on S phase of the cell cycle. So when you have cancers and you have all of these cells in a tumor, they're not all going to be in the same phase of the cell, right? So as we're going mm. through mitosis and spreading, so that's why we use multiple alternating drugs because they attack those cells in different phases of the cell cycle. We also know that those drugs may have one mechanism of action, meaning they work one way or they work multiple ways. Well, doxorubicin has greater than 12 mechanisms of action. So a lot of times when there's a, a tumor and they're like, we're going to give it chemo, we don't know what's going to work. Let's give it dox. That's why they do that is because that drug has that really wide range of, of mechanisms of action that it's going to target more of those phases of the cell cycle. And when we have that, the most commonly affected cells within the body, you can actually remember that, but I use the word bag. And that's the BAG. So B is for your bone marrow. That's one of the cell or one of the body systems that's mainly affected by chemo. And it's because they are rapidly dividing cells, right? Your bone marrow is mm -hmm. what's making your cells. It's pumping these cells out. So when you give that immunosuppressive agent, it affects that bone marrow. The bone marrow doesn't put out the cells like it's supposed to. You get anemia, you get thrombocytopenia because of the effect on that chemo kind of bumping that bone marrow down. We can also see um, that things like the neutropenia, like that she talked about and the most important thing that we look for on that CBC with a differential is not the total white cell count. We could care less what your total, really not care as much about what the total white cell count is. What we care about is that neutrophil count, because if their total is normal, but their, but their neutrophil count is a thousand, right? And you give them chemotherapy, it didn't matter that their total was normal. They still didn't have sufficient numbers of, um, of, uh, immune little fighters there to help kind of fight off that infection. So big, important reason why we talk about um, rapidly dividing cells and our bone marrow being one of them. The second we say is A for alopecia or skin. So in people, right, one of the common side effects we see is hair loss. It's very common to see someone who's lost their hair and to think, oh, they, I bet they're going through chemotherapy. And so it always comes up, do pets lose their hair with chemotherapy? And the answer is yes and no. So they do and they don't. And it depends on the type of hair coat that they have, right? So we have breeze, there's, I think it's three different types 
of hair because this is like Danny's specialty. I think it's like catagen, <laughs> antigen, telogen, something like that. And the, the ever-growing coats, like our poodles, our lassas, those guys will lose their coat. Our short-coated breeds like boxers, labs, don't tend to. And unfortunately, our little kitty cats love to lose their whiskers, which is super sad. They need like little prosthetic whiskers um, for while they go through. Um, but that is as common in some of those in some of those breeds and then the g stands for gi or gastrointestinal tract and that's going to talk about that vomiting and diarrhea it's the tip of the week i don't know that i have a tip of the week other than telling i mean the biggest tip that i have about lymphoma would be find the lymph nodes practice feeling mm. lymph nodes especially as a technician in any arena on any species Cats might get a little more upset about it. You can do it to your pets at home. Like I said, mine kind of run when I'm like, here. Um, but you can even practice anyone who went to tech school, like you practice with your syringe, right? How to yeah. do that, get some calipers and practice using them so that it doesn't feel really awkward when you're trying to do it officially on a patient and you can always i'm going to use this word molest because i feel like sometimes it is molesting you can molest the animals that are like sedated or anesthetized right i feel like that's easier because then you're like where's that lymph node and and then they don't they don't get so upset at you <laughs> that's true because anytime you are going for like the pre-scap or the the mandibular lymph nodes Animals always like do the turtle thing where they just start like scrunching their neck in and <laughs> like, totally no, why are you grabbing here? Um, and then I guess the only other tip that I would have would be on fine needle aspirates. So mm. in the oncology department, oncologists and technicians, we aspirate the mandibular lymph nodes a lot uh, mm -hmm. because they are often very easy to grab and aspirate for sure. We don't recommend that for everyone because those are the most highly reactive lymph nodes. So you could actually end up getting more reactive um, items or hitting a salivary gland in all mm -hmm. honesty you're in that area versus if you have an enlarged popliteal lymph node, go for the enlarged popliteal lymph node oh, um, yeah. or, or kind of any, any other one that you can get to, unless that is the only one, because sometimes that's really the only one, but that is a huge recommendation that they make is just because of the reactivity of everything in that area. Yeah. Um, it could be that, and also submit samples from multiple lymph nodes. So just because you poke the one, if we have all of them enlarged, send like three of them, they don't charge more for different lymph nodes when you're going for lymphoma. So if cost is the thing, mm. it counts as one site in just about every lab I've seen, unless you're using some odd lab and please check with them. But usually if you're looking for lymphoma and you tell them that, they'll count that as one site because they're looking for the one specific thing. Oh. So that's, a, I, that's a big tip, honestly. That's a, that's a good tip to like figure out with whichever um, lab you're using, like how can you submit it? Because it's going to be a frequent thing, right? You're just like, oh. yeah. So nice. Um, and then we'll also put some resources in the show notes. Um, you had some articles, we were talking about some books and stuff. So we'll definitely put that in there. Um, yeah. I would like to say uh, one that I didn't put in there, but because Jenny decided to come after you guys with some cytology questions, eclinpath.com oh yeah. <laughs> is one of the best resources you could ever find 
for cytology. There are pictures, there's explanations, it's understandable, and it is just absolutely amazing. And it's free and you can use it as long as you keep it free to spread the knowledge to others. So please definitely look into that one. Sorry. I really like that. That's so awesome because Jordan and I um, talk about it all the time. So I love that it's not just us. (laughs) No. And, um, I've even donated to them because I was like, I love you so much. Take some of my money. Cause you can, you can donate to them kind of like Wikipedia, but, but Eclim path is like super cooler. Um, all right, cool. So this is our first lymphoma episode. So next week we're going to dive into cat lymphoma because cats are cats and they do what they want. And then cancer is cancer and does what it wants. So it's kind of like a double whammy. Um, yeah. Anything else, uh, we want to share before we let them go for the week? (laughs) That's it. It was a good episode. I learned a lot. Yeah. Thanks you guys. I was like, Oh, oh. I mean, you guys sound maybe like, you know, what you're talking about. Just saying. <laughs> I know it was so funny. Cause you guys were talking about like the, the GI signs. I'm like, also ask the clients if they're feeding their animals, a bunch of random crap, because now they have cancer. I didn't like, talk about that. That's a big one because honestly, our patients get so fat. Yeah. Especially lymphoma patients. Cause if you're treating them for 25 weeks, they'll steak dinners every night. I know, man, they start to <laughs> add up. I had one, he ran out of a neck. They had to go to a harness. He was like an American bulldog and just, there was no Aww. neck anymore. I was like, do we need to talk about an intervention and what you're, well, and I mean, that is, that is a really good point too. Like, um, you know, we're, especially with the prednisone, like you're, you're, you've got like this double whammy of prednisone, them feeling better, the chemo and, and owner like guilt. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. we do sometimes have to rein them in and be like, Whoa, Whoa. I understand they weren't eating that great before, but let's not make things worse. (laughs) That's a really funny thing that you can see between seasoned oncology technicians and new ones is we will walk in. Like I said, where I'm like, don't stare at your dog. Right. Anyone training with is like, what did you just say to them? And I'm like, trust me they're gonna get to know me really well they already know all I want to do is take care of their dog but I'll be like what did you feel do you know how much we weigh today I was like (laughs) maybe maybe skip their breakfast if you're gonna go for steak I mean let's just (laughs) let's be real I was like we're gonna have to get more chemo soon please then there's the IM technicians and we're like don't give them steak Don't, don't do it. Gee, I, I, love mean, that. <laughs> I usually won't mess with them until a month in because I'm like, Aww. it's still setting in. They're still processing yeah. all the stuff. And I'll be like, I know I was like, this thing is going to be so fat by the end of this month. It's going to be great. <laughs> I was like, but their activity level will be up so they can work some of it off. Nice. So, yeah. <sighs> all right. Well, um, <laughs> I'm gonna leave some of this in or Jordan can leave some of this in because <laughs> it's so technician talk um, you lovely ladies have a wonderful week um, and we'll talk kitty cat lymphoma the next time and um, we'll see you guys later have a great week bye, bye. bye. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.